The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There is a zero tolerance policy. It doesn't matter whether your protest has 3,000 people or three people. If they perceive it as being directed, controlled, financed by the government of Russia or foreign government, they are going to deploy whatever tools they have to go after it. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 8th, 2022. On July 29th, the Justice Department announced the indictment of Alexander Ionov, a Russian national and president of the anti-globalization movement of Russia. Ionov is charged with, quote, conspiring to have U.S. citizens act as illegal agents of the Russian government. And the Justice Department alleges that he was essentially running a years-long influence operation within the United States on behalf of the FSB, the Russian intelligence agency. The indictment is a wild ride, with a number of unidentified Americans listed as unindicted co-conspirators. To discuss, I sat down with Thomas Ridd, professor of strategic studies at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies, and author of a book on Eastern Bloc influence operations called Active Measures, and Brandon Van Grack, a partner and co-chair of the National Security and Crisis Management Practices at the law firm Morrison and & Forster, and a former official at the Justice Department, where among other things, he served as Senior Assistant Special Counsel to Special Counsel Robert Mueller. We talked through what to make of the allegations against Ionov. Are they alarming or evidence of clumsiness and incompetence on Russia's part? What can we say about the Justice Department's strategy in bringing this case, and where the investigation might go? It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 8th, decoding Alexander Ionov's influence operation, with Thomas Ridd and Brandon Van Grack. Thomas, can you start by just walking us through the story that the indictment tells? Who is this defendant, Alexander Ionov, and what does the indictment allege he was up to? Yeah, so the defendant, Alexander Viktorovich Yonov, is a Russian citizen residing in Moscow, who is the founder and president of the anti-globalization movement of Russia. And uh, he worked with a number of individuals and, as the indictment alleges, three different political groups in the United States and effectively ran an influence, um, or three different influence campaigns or operations 
through those groups, uh, and specifically um, the indictment alleges that two FSB officers effectively ran Yonov, tasked him, he reported back to them, and also alleges that there is a Russian official, that the identity of whom is, uh, is known, uh, who tasked these uh, FSB officers in return. So it's, it's quite an extraordinary uh, story there. And what was your first reaction reading the indictment, this extraordinary story? I'm just curious for your kind of top line take before we dive into the details. Yeah, my top line take was that it's, I mean, it's a 25-page indictment, has a, has, a, has a pretty rich detail in it, uh, reporting on the reporting that Ionov did back to FSB on the types of activities that these various political groups engaged in. Uh, some of the unindict, un, unindicted co-conspirators and their political activities in Florida, specifically, they ran for two of them ran for local offices. And what I also find remo- found remarkable is that the uh, uh, the indictment is sometimes quoting uh, verbatim from publicly accessible documents. So anybody who has access to Google can identify. Uh, some, uh, perhaps all of these individuals and groups fairly quickly uh, with high confidence, certainty actually, which I found uh, remarkable. So by that, by doing that, of course, you can pull in even more details and pictures and and information on what's going on here. So Brendan, let me turn it over to you. What's your sort of overall take on the story that the indictment is telling here and on the indictment itself? You know, the the story is that uh, there's a lot more work we need to do, we being in the United States to deal with this issue of, of influence, uh, including interference in our election. I mean, this conduct um, spanned almost eight years. In fact, most of the conduct occurred after the 2016, the investigation into the 2016 efforts by the Russian government to influence the presidential election and all of the charges and indictments and investigation that followed that, including a number of individuals uh, arrested for being foreign agents. And still this conduct continued across multiple states and multiple groups. Uh, and so it's it's a sign that, one, that the U.S. government continues to place a heavy focus on these types of investigation. But two, that the reality is, is the Russian government continues to see this as an opportunity to interfere, to sow discord. And they they're not slowing down uh, and, and a really uh, thinking sort of quite broad in terms of how they can conduct these operations. I just want to jump in there and, and, and add just this, this fascinating detail that the time span that the indictment here covers begins in, in 2013. And uh, so it predates a lot of the election interference activities in the United States that were that, that we've been discussing for a couple of years now around obviously the 2016 election. And then, of course, continues um, the activity covered in the indictment continues until earlier this year. So it's a really, it's a seven year, or in fact, nine year time span. That's quite remarkable. So let's talk about how much is new here in this document. Thomas, as, as you noted, there's a fair amount that's documented here that was, you know, printed in papers. You could find it on the internet. It was available for anyone to see. To be clear, there's also a fair amount that was not public. Can you kind of break down 
what is news here and what is the indictment repackaging material that was already available in the public eye? Yeah, that's uh, it's really tough, I think, to answer that question specifically, but I'll try. Remarkable, I found, was that, uh, for example, the BBC, BBC's Russian service covered, and others did as well, covered one of the uh, separatist uh, conferences that took place in Moscow where the defendant invite, invited with openly uh, disclosed uh, Russian government support, invited some of these uh, political groups, especially the Uhuru movement, uh, the political group one headquartered in St. Petersburg, Florida, to Moscow. And there, you know, there are pictures online of participants and they're explicitly named unindicted co-conspirator. One is named in that story as well and identified. It's really quite remarkable. This is not, this wasn't hidden, this activity. The only aspect that was hidden, it wasn't even hidden that it was supported by the Russian government. Of course, it wasn't uh, publicly covered uh, that it was, uh, FSB supervised or FSB controlled this activity. So that is certainly a new detail. And of course, a lot of details from the communications, the private communications between the influence agent Dionov or the uh, FSB cutout really is what he was. And some of the American influence agents or unwitting, you can't really call them unwitting because they knew they would be, uh, they, work, they were effectively working with uh, Russia and Russian government interests. Those were also new. You know, just to, um, I think that there is sort of, in terms of new and, and not new, I do think that there's sort of a nuance that's important because, you know, a, as you noted, you know, some of this conference, you know, there's information out there, but I don't think we'd be talking about this case if there was just conferences financed in Russia that U.S. persons and political groups uh, attended. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, there are some of this activity that we know occurred. What we did not know that occurred is that there was uh, the Russian government was funding some of this, was attempting to, you know, was spreading propaganda as part of this. And 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 I say that because the reality is is it's it's not so much you know the fact that there are um, there's Russian propaganda that persons in the United States can access. It's the fact that you had political groups, or I should say alleged that you have political groups and individuals associated with it who seem to have knowledge, who are alleged to have knowledge of these connections to the Russian government and were not, not disclosing it, seemingly taking direction from it, including with respect to the war in, in Ukraine. And, and there's at least, again, some association with respect to some election-related activity. And Again, the fact that you're dealing with multiple groups who aren't necessarily overlapping, some of them are on different issues. It just, I mean, really what this signals, or at least I think what this signals is, you know, the reality is, is how much other activity is occurring in the United States with groups, could be fringe groups, could be groups that don't necessarily have a major platform that are similarly being connected to or touched by you know, the Russian government or, or foreign governments. I think that's where, where, where the U.S. government is particularly focused and concerned. Yeah, I want to dig into the question of the FSB's direct involvement here, because that struck me as as notable, both for the fact that, you know, the, the indictment actually sets out, you know, text messages, messages between Ionov and, you know, FSB officer one, FSB officer two. That jumped out at me just because in, you know, previous charging documents, I've read that the U.S. has has filed on Russian influence operations. It's often, you know, the farthest that you get is this cutout figure, that there there's often not a 
direct link to the FSB itself. And so that jumped out at me both for for just the the directness of it. I mean, there are some examples here where the indictment will allege that essentially an FSB officer told Dionov, reach out to, you know, this un- unidentified American, tell them to do something, and then that American does it. And just being able to draw that direct line is is very striking. And then I also thought it, it was potentially interesting just that the US government is kind of tipping its hand here and saying we have access to these communications between Dionov and officers in the FSB, that that strikes me as as quite significant. So I'm curious for, for both your thoughts on that, whether it is as significant as I think or whether I'm going out on a limb here. Thomas, let me start with you and then I'll turn to Brandon. It's certainly not remarkable that we have that level of granularity and detail and if you like attribution to a specific FS, FSB officers and remarkably a Russian official, which the indictment doesn't spell out uh, more details there, but we have to assume is a political official in Moscow um, in charge of tasking FSB. So it's not, he's an, that individual is not called a, an FSB official, but a, uh, but a Russian official. But of course, we have had uh, similar types of uh, allegations, even in indictments and disclosures by the US government in the past, um, not only in the context of the much discussed GRU indictments that are related to influence operations, there were several but even going back in history, there, there were there were these kinds of disclosures that down to down to agencies and sometimes even specific uh, Russian individuals. So I don't think it's like it's it's certainly remarkable, but it's not completely unprecedented. I certainly agree, not uh, unprecedented. I think you know part of your point is well, if you're collecting, seemingly collecting, such valuable information in terms of what the the Russian government is doing, what, why disclose now? I mean, that's part of the question. I think at least implicit in your question, and, and I think there are a few things. Which is one is what we have is the U.S. government really adopting a zero tolerance policy when it comes to this type of activity. You know, they, it is uh, an effort to you know disclose not just to the Russian government but to persons in the United States, similar political groups or, or individuals that this conduct is occurring and it is criminal. And they're saying this, I think, very loudly. I think related to that is uh, this this indictment was unsealed at the same time there were multiple searches that occurred. And so I think the, this case is not over. Uh, in fact, really, I would, I would speculate that the reason why the timing of the these charges is because the U.S. government knew that it was going to become public because they were going to conduct these searches, which means the U.S. persons, the unindicted individuals, they're, they're still potentially in legal jeopardy. We don't know whether there are potential charges there. We don't know whether they may have an obligation to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, but, but the U.S. government is absolutely going to investigate these individuals fully and it starts with the search warrant that we saw. And I think it goes to my first point in terms of this signals the fact that all of the efforts that we've been doing, uh, the, we, the U.S. government, has been doing to try to target this activity, while it is notable and it is a, uh, a sea change from what occurred before 2016, uh, there's a recognition there's still more that needs to be done. And I think you're going to see U.S. persons targeted and charged uh, with respect to that activity, because ultimately it's not just about what the foreign government is doing, but the persons in the United States are willingly doing with respect to that that level of interference and influence. Yeah, um, I, I feel we also should maybe just touch on the broader context here. I mean, 
from a broader historical perspective, I think, certainly if we take a really long view and go back to the Cold War, really, this, is, this isn't that new, this type of activity. Uh, the Soviet, Soviet different, in fact, different Soviet bloc agencies, but especially KGB, um, used very, very similar tactics to influence the peace movement, the nuclear freeze movement, um, for example, the whole debate around the what became known as neutron bomb in the late 70s. These were targets for major year-long um, protracted active measures campaigns that were really, and that's a key point, executed far more professionally, far, in a far more disciplined and really more impactful way than this. So, you know, after studying some of these historical campaigns and then reading the indictment, I can't help but but almost uh, cringe because the, the the groups that they were supporting here are so fringe and so unimpressive. I mean, the, let's be specific. The uh, the picture that the indictment describes that the um, that Yonov shared a picture of uh, press coverage of one of these protests that he had helped to facilitate in front of Meta, in front of, uh, you know, Meta's headquarters in in California, in Palo Alto. And, and there are three, the three people demonstrating holding up a Russian flag. I mean, three people uh, of a group called Black Hammer that probably very few Americans have ever heard of. It's just not that impressive from a, from a sort of influence campaigning perspective. I'm not justifying anything, of course. I think it's still too much and should absolutely be uh, prosecuted and stopped. But it, but we should also recognize it's probably not very effective what they've been doing here. Yeah. So I want to I wanna come back to that because I think it's important and it's also important to contextualize it, as you say. Before we do that, though, let me go back to Brandon's point about where this investigation might be headed, because I think that uh, one thing that we haven't done yet is drill down into what specifically Iona was charged with. So he's been charged with 18 U.S.C. 371, which is a general conspiracy statute. And as described in the indictment, he's charged with conspiring to have U.S. citizens act as legally agents of the Russian government. Brandy, can you talk us through that statute, how it's used here, and and what, if anything, it might indicate about where the investigation is headed? It jumped out to me that they're charging him with a conspiracy statute rather than charging him with uh, the statute that he was conspiring to violate, uh, 18 U.S.C. 951. Uh, that's right. Maybe starting with the substantive law that, that he was accused of conspiring to violate 18 United States Code 951. And it is a, a, a law that um, makes it unlawful to act as an agent of a foreign government without notifying the attorney general. It has its history from the Espionage Act. And uh, it's very broadly worded. What's interesting here uh, in terms of where this is heading is, as you note, it's a conspiracy, which means the allegation is not that uh, Yanov was the agent acting in the United States. It was that he was conspiring to have an agent or agents act in the United States on behalf of the Russian government. And so it's the reason I say, you know, this, this case I don't think is over yet. I don't know exactly what the U.S. government will do. But in essence, to some degree, you sort of have a handler here. That's not quite, I think, the right way to characterize Yanov, but the individual who is the conduit between the foreign, uh, the Russian government and the and the individuals in the United States, it is not. We've seen this before, where the the foreign person is charged in a conspiracy. In fact, in, in the Tom Barrett case, 
uh, an individual connected to the government of the UAE was first charged as an agent as conspiring to violate 951. And ultimately, later on, uh, two years later, I believe, Tom Barrick and others were charged uh, also with actually being the agents who had not registered. Uh, and so there, there's some precedent for initially going after the, the foreign person. But that's the reason why I suspect you have this conspiracy to violate Section 951 being an agent of a foreign government. And so the fact that you have so many individuals, the fact in the United States, multiple individuals, the fact that there were multiple searches conducted uh, suggests that that the Justice Department and the FBI in, really have not yet decided whether, in fact, there are going to be additional charges. And just to clarify, because I know this is something that often gets uh, snarled up in the press, can you explain the difference between 951 and FARA? Because I think people often uh, understand them as overlapping, but in, in fact, they're they're distinct. I like the phrase "snarled up." Um, so yeah, so they're they're related, um, very much related, and uh, they're sort of overlapping concentric circles. That ultimately, they both broadly regulate acting as an agent in the United States on behalf of foreign entities. 951, the, the, the statute here, 18 United States Code, Section 951, it is, uh, again, it, it's, its origins are the Espionage Act, and it really was intending to target individuals acting in the United States uh, as spies. And it makes it unlawful to act as an agent of a foreign government without notifying the attorney general. There's not... There's not a, a regime. There's not sort of filings to fill out. You just, in fact, it, it still happens where you just simply notify the attorney general or the Department of Justice. The Foreign Agents Registration Act, it, it, that is, in fact, a sort of a regulatory regime, and it requires individuals acting as foreign agents of any entity, not just the foreign government. It could be a foreign company, uh, could be a foreign individual uh, with acting and, and, and it lists sort of a set of activities that you'd have to be engaged in, such as lobbying. If you're engaged in certain activities that are listed on behalf of a foreign government, foreign person, foreign individual, you have to register with, with, with the Department of Justice. And then there is this extensive uh, system and, and set of documents that you have to file with the Department of Justice to disclose that activity. And so they, they can be related in the sense that if you are acting as a foreign agent, an agent of a foreign government, there can in fact be a violation of 18 USC 951, and there can be a violation of FARA. And in fact, we've seen instances where the Department of Justice has charged both uh, statutes, both 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 crimes in the same case, and so they're related. Uh, and but but ultimately, one of the biggest things again is the fact that the Foreign Agents Registration Act has this very, very onerous registration piece to it uh, that that 951 does not. So let's talk about the Americans who are sort of on the other side of this and and who seem to very possibly be facing downs on investigation themselves. Thomas, you were saying that, you know, the, these groups that seem to be able to be identified here are by and large quite fringe. Can you give us a little more on what these groups are and what particularly is fringe about them? Because I think that might help sort of communicate to listeners just how wacky some of this stuff is. Yeah, I only spent a little bit of time looking into this, but it's really not very hard to find out who they are. It's also floating. In fact, some of them 
some of the uh, unindicted co-conspirators have uh, written and responded to the to the indictment. Um, most interestingly, I think, uh, for example, political group three is the Yes California movement, or commonly known as Calexit, and founded by Luis Marinelli, who, in fact, on his Substack, wrote a long, detailed post about his relationship with uh, the defendant, with Yonov. They've known each other for many years. In fact, uh, spent time in Mo- spent a lot of time in Moscow together. The indictment also alleges that Yonov communicated in Russian with uh, Marinelli, who lived in Russia for for a couple of years, taught English there. So that's quite 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 an interesting read to to see that the take of the uh, founder there of the Calexit uh, movement, but obviously not a movement that really ever achieved. Uh, a really meaningful political impact. Perhaps the other two groups are even more fringe. The first one is, and again, these are publicly mentioned in press coverage, like from Moscow, uh, trips that are explicitly described in the indictment. So it's 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 a fairly fairly good match there in terms of uh, evidence. One is the Uhuru movement, uh, aka the African People's Socialist Party, headquartered in uh, Saint Petersburg, Florida. The founder and chairman is Omaili Yashitela, I think if I'm uh, probably not pronouncing his name correctly there. And the other group as an offshoot of the Uhuru movement in Georgia called Black Hammer. And uh, I mean, I had never even heard of these movements before. Um, I don't think they were particularly uh, impactful, certainly not judged by the uh, votes that their candidates achieved in local elections. So I, it strikes me as as a, almost a bit of a desperate move on the part of the FSB um, to, you know, the reaction is almost, uh, my reaction was like, really, this is the, this is the best you can do in terms of influence uh, campaigning? Um, of course, we don't know if there's even more happening, if they are also trying to influence more influential political movements in the United States, but those three are, are what we have here. You know, just a just a comment on that, which I I, I agree at least based on sort of the the connections it appears to be made to to those groups that you're dealing with groups that are sort of not very popular and and fringe. But 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 I I do think we need to be careful in terms of focusing on that because at this point, you know what you know the definition of what is a fringe group I think has really fundamentally changed over over really just the course of a few years. I think there are groups and entities, individuals who to this day are support sort of outlandish claims to the point of absurdity and certainly counterfactual. And yet for, for reasons that are far beyond my understanding, achieve remarkable popularity and following and influence in a short period of time. And I, I sort of think that this is sort of viewed a bit through the lens of sort of the shotgun approach to, to influence, which is being opportunistic and on the, the by means of the Russian government, the reality is is they have no idea which one of these may in fact gain traction. But you seek to influence as many groups as you possibly can, as many individuals, and you just don't know. And I think some of the other in the last few years, some of the other foreign agent cases, even tied to Russia. Yeah, I think similarly, what I totally agree, which is its effect. The actual effect is sort of unclear or questionable at best. But again, ultimately, the objective is I think it really ends up being a bit more of a shotgun approach to any type of 
um, influence it, it can get. And again, I think pivoting to, you know, because these are, are fringe and unpopular groups, and, and I certainly agree that it's unclear if that it had any any impact or influence. I think this also just goes to show what the U.S. government is trying to communicate here, which is there is a zero tolerance policy. It doesn't matter whether your protest has 3,000 people or three people. If they perceive it as being directed, controlled, financed by the government of Russia or foreign government, they are going to deploy whatever tools they have to go after it. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes 
any personal information you don't want online and make sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So I'm curious, Brandon, what you make of the approach in the indictment of kind of keeping these groups and individuals unidentified, but as Thomas said, including sufficient information that, you know, it's it's quite easy to figure out who they are. I mean, there's, I copy pasted some quotes into Google and found things within, you know, under under a minute. What do you make of that? Well, you know, it, it's it's an unfortunate consequence of, of you know, public charges. It, it's sort of simply the cost of our, our system, which is you know, the, the Justice Department is obligated to anonymize individuals who are not charged. And so it's totally appropriate to be listing unindicted uh, co-conspirators and, and individuals and, and trying to anonymize them. But what you're pointing out, and this happens all of the time, it, it can be nearly impossible to, to achieve that. And in this case, because... As I think Thomas pointed out uh, in a number of instances, so much of this conduct can be publicly identified with the group. It was seemingly, uh, I would speculate, n- impossible to to have an indictment of this length and detail and not sort of risk the fact that individuals may in fact b- be identified by it. I, I don't believe, uh, again, to speculate that sort of th- this is intentional on behalf of the Justice Department to make sure these entities were identified. To the contrary, I think they tried to anonymize it, at least I think uh, by my read, as best as they could. But 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 in the end, the reality is, 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 is they could not. So Thomas, I want to go back to the kind of historical element here. And you you tweeted uh, something quite funny that this was, you know, so you you literally wrote a book uh, on active measures called Active Measures about Soviet influence operations. And you tweeted that this conduct described in the indictment was a pale shadow of ex-Eastern Bloc ops and laughably sloppy and ineffective. What do you mean by that? First off, what I already alluded to, the fact that these groups were so fringe, for example, the uh, KGB invested significant resources in uh, in influencing 
what may still be the biggest political demonstration in U.S. history. The um, forget the formal title, but it happened in Central Park in New York and attracted up to a million protesters uh, back in the uh, early 80s. That was uh, obviously a far more ambitious and far more well-executed influence campaign. They try to effectively get these demonstrators to um, condemn American nuclear modernization or NATO for uh, nuclear modernization in Europe, but not the presence of uh, of, of Soviet nuclear weapons um, also in Europe. So they try to essentially focus the demonstrations on U.S. and NATO uh, weapons, not Soviet weapons. That was fairly cleverly done and implemented and, and very persistent and extremely well-funded that cannot be said of this campaign here. If you look at the dollar amounts that are included in the indictment, we're looking at you know, very small amounts. That the, the largest amount mentioned is 12,000. And um, it just doesn't, doesn't seem to move the needle that much, is my impression. And then also, it was all out in the open. And not that, you know, the trade craft and what they are trying to achieve, it's almost as if they were trying to just show that they're doing something. I mean, this makes GRU look effective uh, and well-organized, which is an achievement in itself uh, on the part of the F- FSB here. So t- tell me what you mean by that for, for listeners who might not be familiar with the sort of intra-Russian government politics. So one of the one of the uh, puzzles for watchers of Russian intelligence is that um, up to now, up to this indictment, really most of the influence operations that were exposed by U.S. by the U.S. Uh, by the Department of Justice, by the Mueller investigation, and others, uh, of course, were GRU and the Internet Research Agency, and everybody was asking, okay, where is FSB? Where is SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Agency in Russia? Because they tended to, historically, SVR would be the entity that you would expect to execute these operations, given that they inherited the KGB structure that was historically in charge of active measures. So um, now seeing the first real FSB influence operation exposed and, and seeing, you know, just this is a bit of a bit of a disappointment to those of us who uh, were uh, expecting more from uh, the formerly mighty KGB as opposed to GRU. And so does it make sense to say then that, you know, as as you were saying, this is sort of the FSB showing that it can keep its hand in is it is this perhaps a side effect of the fact that just there's sort of less for uh, now Russia than the Soviet Union to work with than there was in the 1980s? Has does this show that you know Russian tradecraft is in decline? Is there anything that we can make of that? Yeah, that's a really fun, hard question. I would say two quick things. First off, this is most certainly not the A team what we're seeing here. So I would be cautious to infer from this indictment and the activity that is exposed that uh, this is the best that you know FSB has to offer when it comes to influence operations. Almost certainly it's not. So I'll just keep watching and, and looking what we you know will find in the future. And the second is, I think it's important not to misunderstand the nature of some of these operations, especially when they involve human assets on the ground as opposed to hacking and leaking, for example, or social media operations. And I say this because the indictment uses the phrase direction and exercise direction or control over these American political groups. 
several times this phrase, direction or control over. And oftentimes that is not the point of influence operations. You essentially, from an offensive point of view, what you would do is you would try to spot opportunities and then just help you grease the gears a little bit with money or other support. It's not necessarily full-on directional control that may also occasionally take place, but I think the problem starts earlier than just directional control, uh, meaning you just provide money to an entity that is, for ideological reasons, furthering your interest in driving divisions in the United States. There's one remarkable case where KGB provided leaked documents, in fact, leaked and forged documents sometimes to American activists here in the Washington region historically. And they would then run with those documents, publish them, and just create division through an operation like this, which is not really directional control, but it's just feeding a machine and help make it run a little more effectively than it would otherwise. Brandon, it strikes me that the the direction or control, as Thomas says, described in this indictment might make it substantially easier to charge such a, a case since, I mean, like I, I mentioned before, you literally have an example of a uh, command going straight from the FSB through Yanov to the un, the uh, the unindicted co-conspirator, the American, rather than this sort of nudge greasing the wheels. Is that is that right? Or am I uh, reading too much into that? No, no, th- that's exactly right. And that's what the law requires. Um, the, the, the law that we're talking about that they that Yanov is uh, accused of conspiring to li- uh, violate Section 951, it requires direction or control by a foreign government. So it is it is the requirement, and, and you should assume that there are scores of investigations uh, occurring in the United States as we speak, where you know the FBI and Justice Department you know see smoke, but they are looking for is there direction or control? That is really the trigger for for not just. Section 951, but even uh, the Foreign Agents Registration Act requires direction or control, and there are some other triggers for that law as well. So it, it's it's a it's a critical uh, piece of evidence that, that must be obtained. And just sort of one additional point, and, and I certainly agree with Thomas's characterization I, I, of that. Ultimately, there are aspects of this that sort of are I'll just say broadly, sort of perhaps unimpressive. But I, I think part of this is also just understanding the brazenness of the Russian government. I mean, we saw earlier this year, there was also in Florida, a different district in the Southern district of Florida, Fuentes, an individual was traveling in Florida, trying to taking photographs and casing an individual in the United States who was providing information on the Russian government that he, he ultimately pled guilty to also violating the same law, uh, 18 United States code 951 and was just sentenced to four years. And I say that because it was a, that's a bold operation, getting an agent in the United States to operate, to track someone of interest to the Russian government. And, and, and they're doing that. And so I think uh, exactly to Thomas's point, there are a number of foreign agencies that are operating in the United States. I think this is just one small aspect of it. And, you know, why this one as opposed to others, you know, for all we know, it's just sloppy trade crap. We just don't know exactly why this or the others. But I really do think it's important to, to emphasize again while while we you know we don't know what else is out there, I, I really do think this is intended to be a clear warning, not just to sort of show the Russian government, uh, you know, we know what you're doing, but it is to uh, flag for any group, any political group, including fringe groups. If you are 
connecting if you were being funded by the government of Russia, which is right now the top national security priority of the U.S. government, the U.S. government is looking for you. They are looking to target that activity and disrupt the activity. And so I think the messaging here is on that point is, is as clear as can be. You mentioned the the brazenness of, of this operation and of other operations by the Russian government. I think that that might be a good opportunity to kind of zoom out a little bit and put this indictment in context of, as you say, you know, the, those other influence operations. So there's obviously been uh, no shortage of, of stuff going on in this space recently. I think one of the more sort of odd instances uh, happened to do with a, a person who was identified by Dutch authorities as a Russian agent who was posing as a Brazilian um, and was actually a student at the at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies. Thomas, I know you keep an eye on on this stuff. Can you give us a overview of sort of how this fits into broader Russian actions in this space recently? Yeah, um, so the GRU uh, illegal who you alluded to there just now was exposed um, by Dutch intelligence. Uh, when was it? A couple, two months, about one and a half months ago. It was then later turned out to be um, uh, one of our students. That, of course, hits a little close to home. And um, interesting in this case is that this individual was obviously a very different type of intelligence operation. He was an illegal under deep cover, so he studied here under a Brazilian cover identity. Can I ask for, for listeners who aren't familiar, can you explain what you mean when you say he was an illegal? Oh, I'm sorry. Some listeners may be familiar with the show The Americans. So this refers to intelligence officers, so not locally recruited assets, what's commonly referred to as a spy, but actually intelligence officers, Russian intelligence officers. It's a Russian um, uh, thing uh, that are under deep cover. So they really assume the identity of, in this case, a, a Brazilian student and at, Amer at an American university, graduate under a cover identity, live under cover identity, not as, for example, a diplomat um, at the embassy, and, and really build that deep cover in order to achieve certain intelligence goals. In this case, it appears that the uh, individual under the cover name um, uh, is better known under his cover name, which was Victor Muller, uh, was then sent to the International Criminal Court, the ICC in The Hague, in order as an intern, you know, with a degree from SICE. So where he was then exposed. Important here to appreciate that this is not used for influence. This here was not used for influence operations, but presumably for uh, just intelligence collection. But of course, it's very possible to consider a scenario where he would be somehow also used uh, to shape a specific policy or response by the ICC, but that is speculation at this stage. But certainly also uh, to uh, the earlier point, it is a sign that this shows just how brazen the Russian intelligence community uh, still is um, when it operates here in the United States. So absolutely. And would you expect to see any effect from an indictment like this on those kinds of activities? I I did wonder when I, I read the indictment whether it fits into what's been called a, a sort of name and shame strategy on the part of the United States when it comes to 
influence operations, espionage, cyber operations of kind of using indictments like this one to call out uh, foreign powers, most notably Russia and China, and say, we know you're doing this. We can see you doing it. Stop, not only as a warning to Americans who might get caught up in it, as Brandon has said, but also to those powers themselves. Would you expect this, Thomas, to, to play any role at all um, in checking that brazenness? Or is that sort of not part of the calculation on the Russian side? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I would love to also hear what Brandon has to say on that question of effectiveness. How effective are these indictments in terms of uh, curtailing, affecting, potentially deterring intelligence operations? It's a controversial question. And I think the Department of Justice and the policy, the practice of uh, doing these indictments against foreign intelligence entities has received you know, criticism by a lot of very well-informed observers over the past years i personally think uh it is it's a it's a fraught question that has to has has to be approached soberly i cannot imagine that these indictments have no effect they certainly have an effect on the operations that are exposed probably stop many of them in their tracks uh, they absolutely have an effect on you know the unindicted co-conspirators for example and organization their organizations and like other organizations that may uh, recognize that they are interacting with somebody who openly works with the Russian government. So they will have an effect. Uh, they may even have a deterrent effect, but the deterrent effect, we shouldn't be naive, uh, doesn't mean that these operations will stop as a result. Uh, but the cost will go up. The cost-benefit the cost benefit calculation of the, uh, of the threat actors, of the intelligence agencies in question may go up. So I personally think uh, would be surprised if these indictments have uh, have no effect. It's just that the effect is a little more subtle and complex than many people seem to assume. I, I agree with that. I, I don't think this is a name and shame document, uh, and and the reason why is because we we know that there were search warrants conducted on at least three locations, perhaps more, connected to this. You know, a name and shame uh, indictment is is typically something where you are trying to or allegedly sort of just messaging to the foreign government, do not do this, we know what you're doing. And while that's partly what's happening here, the reality is, is because we have these individuals in the United States, we know there are active criminal investigations that are still ongoing with respect to it. I don't think it's a name and shame. In fact, I think really, again, part of the, the primary audience is not the government of Russia. It, it It's persons in the United States. Uh, it is trying to target that. And so it, one, I, again, I think uh, the, yeah, you can probably have it, its own show on sort of what, you know, what is name and shame, its effectiveness. But I think I think there's a broader purpose here. And I think that explains the timing as well. I also think some of the context that you're asking about, you need to expand beyond the lens of Russia. You know, the issue of interference, influence, especially election interference, it's something that was for up until the 2016 presidential election really ignored and overlooked. And it is now a top national security priority. And we've just seen that uh, there's really been an, an escalation even since then. Uh, in fact, in this year alone, there are, I believe, at least 13 cases where individuals have been criminally charged with, we'll say, foreign agent activity acting as a foreign agent in the United States. That's a massive number. I mean, it's possible that's the largest, the, the biggest number we've ever seen in any given year. And and there's still a third of the year left. In fact, I, I don't think it's difficult to posit that there's going to be more of those criminal charges in this year. And it's not just Russia. There are other governments, including agents connected to, to China and Egypt 
uh, and I believe Qatar that, that are involved in some of these. And so part of this is really a signaling in the in terms of the U.S. government that this issue of influence and election interference is a top priority. It, and and just one final point on that is I think that's the reason you had so many offices sign this indictment. It is very unusual to see seven signatures on an indictment from so many offices. And I think it shows that you have so many offices that are investing time and resources and coordinating into this type of activity. That was actually what I something I wanted to ask you about is just the huge size of that signature block. We have the National Security Division. We have the Public Integrity Section of the Criminal Division, the Counterintelligence and Export Control Section. So uh, for listeners who haven't taken a look at the indictment, it's really worth just pulling up that last page because it's quite impressive. Well, and and there's uh, I'll say that it's worth noting in terms of the sections from the Justice Department that are specifically highlighted here beyond the U.S. Attorney's Office. It's the counterintelligence and export control section and the public integrity section. Those are in two different divisions. There's the criminal division and the national security division in 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 the Justice Department, and they are increasingly those two groups increasingly coordinating on foreign agent activity because the public integrity section tends to focus on election interference. The National Security Division focuses on activity on behalf of foreign governments, foreign, foreign agent and espionage activity. And there's now such an overlap that you're seeing more and more cases with both. And, and just as by way of example, Elliot Broidy, that matter, was a foreign agent case that was actually in, uh, largely investigated by the public integrity section. So it just shows, goes to show how many groups in the Justice Department are focused on this issue. Also, in terms of the broader context, Quinta, and in response to uh, Brandon's comment just now, you know, just today, earlier today, uh, Mandiant, part of Google, exposed, I think what to, to date is the most uh, detailed and aggressive Chinese uh, foreign influence operation that, um, uh, to my knowledge, has been targeting Western uh, countries. Uh, it operated in 11 lang languages and uh, ran 72 what seems to be inauthentic news sites. The attribution to the Chinese government is is not direct and not clear yet, but uh, it certainly looks like it's endorsed by the government. Uh, also earlier today, Facebook or Meta published uh, uh, its quarterly report and revealed a couple of major uh, influence operations. So this is a very busy space, not always focused on elections, uh, but certainly potentially also on elections. And really... It makes one thing particularly crucial and important in my view, and that is to be as sober and careful as we can possibly be when it comes to assessing effectiveness. Because the situation is often that these operations are not very effective and we risk giving them more uh, spotlight through countermeasures like indictments and revelations and disclosures. However, it's very thinkable and I think actually likely that we will see very effective influence operations, especially through hack and leak or hacking, forging and leaking operations in the context of elections and elsewhere. So it's important to keep essentially our credibility intact and to keep our powder dry, so to speak, for when the real one hits, that we are well equipped to adequately and accurately describe what it does and not be distracted by some of the minor operations too much. Yeah. Can I ask for, for people who do want to keep an eye out, what particular things should they be looking for that would indicate that this is moving forward? 
Well, you know, I look, I, I think at this point, it, it considering a search was just, uh, again, multiple searches occurred, I think there's just an active criminal investigation right now. And so considering they already felt that they had enough to charge this individual, uh, they're pretty advanced in their investigation. So I think the next thing that you would see is, are there going to be criminal charges? Are there going to be registrations in the Foreign Agents Registration Act? So I think it's actually, it should be a pretty overt step that we see in terms of what happens next. In that case, we'll keep an eye out. Brandon, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare, where you'll also get access to special events and other content only available to our supporters. This podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell. And your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.